So a couple of questions from earlier this week. One about uh, integrating this practice with other practices. The question in particular was asking about integrating it with um, traditional Vipassana practice. I want to talk more broadly. Um, but, but first, just to say something. Um, I'm not quite sure that the... I think often when people say traditional Vipassana practice, they mean the Mahasi practice. So I'm assuming that's what the question is referring to. Um, there actually isn't anything that would be called a traditional Vipassana practice. It's uh, uh, perhaps the Mahasi practice can be seen as traditional because uh, the IMS teachers really kind of took up the Mahasi practice in the 80s and and so traditional since the 80s perhaps. <laughs> um, but I, I think that's what that's referring to. But I want to speak actually more generally about integrating this practice with other practices. And some of it I'll, I'll explore my own experience with this because I have found um, it to be very powerful to combine some of the learning from this style of practice with other practices. The key, one of the key learnings I feel uh, from this practice is relaxation and mindfulness are not opposite and that relaxed attention is really the ground uh, out of which pretty much any practice can be fruitful. Without that relaxed attention to whatever the object is, the mind is often tight, striving, pushing, holding on to whatever the object of the practice is. And so that, uh, that sense of being relaxed and yet attentive almost I'll even say this, I hadn't thought of framing it this way until just this minute, but um, the receptive attention that we are exploring here, relax, receive, um, you can explore a receptive attention to a directed object. So if you turn your attention to the breath, you can kind of narrow the focus to the breath or narrow the, the field from which you will be, uh, to, to which you will be attending. So narrowing the attention to the breath and then receiving the experience of the breath. And so in some ways we can explore the receptive side of this practice to a directed object, to a directed experience. So um, the container of relaxed attention for any practice, um, if you uh, make that the primary or the most important piece, how is the attention, is the, retention rel is the attention relaxed and at ease as it's picking up on whatever object it's meeting? Uh, if you make that more important than holding on to whatever object it is, uh, ultimately, I think that the um, the uh, the practice will unfold more um, mm, fruitfully. I guess I would say. So, how to do that? How to how to work with a container of relaxed attention with any object? So for myself, as I explored this around concentration practice, um, I um, got curious about, I mean, I noticed, I noticed that as I turned my attention to the breath, it was almost partly from habit. You know, I, I did start with the, with the traditional Vipassana pr 
practice, and partly from or traditional Vipassana, see there I said it, started with the Mahasi practice. <laughs> I started with the Mahasi practice, um, and uh, uh, I thought I needed to hang on to that breath. And so the whole practice, the whole um, uh, habit, the habit around practice became holding on to the breath. And so there was a, a habit around tightening up when I turned my attention to the breath. And so as I was exploring concentration practice rather than the Mahasi style practice, uh, and I, I actually found that I didn't, pretty much didn't want to even try concentration practice for much of my early years because I was so tight around the breath. And yet coming back from practicing with Sayadaw Utejaniya, there was a realization, there was so much more relaxation that some part of my, uh, my, my being is basically was sending up these thoughts. It's time to do concentration practice. It's time to do concentration. It's like, okay, I guess I'll try that. Um, so uh, I began exploring the concentration practice. And when I first started that, I was just simply, okay, I stay with the breath, I stay with the breath, but there was so much of a habit of tightening around the breath that I, um, I ended up finding my way to a kind of an integration around relaxation and attending to the breath. It went something like this. I would bring my attention to the breath if it was too tight and so this is, this is about checking the relationship of the um, mind to the practice itself. We've been talking about checking the relationship to the object. And some, to some extent, this is checking the relationship to the object of the breath. But it's, it's not so much about the breath that I was feeling tight. It was about the practice around the breath that I was feeling tight. And so um, checking the attitude, checking the relationship. So how I brought my attention to the breath was kind of squeezing and tight. And, and so as soon as I noticed that, I would let go. I would go back to, can there be relaxation? And for me, what I found was if I just kind of went back to open awareness, I had done enough open awareness practice by that point that I could pretty much relax and just receive. So the relax, receive had gotten very comfortable. So relax and receive. And somewhere in that receiving, a breath would be received. And it was, oh, there's a relaxed breath. That one. So it was, it was uh, the mind recognizing it's possible to be relaxed while attending to the breath. So that was a little bit of a support there. So I would notice that there was that relaxed breath that had been received and I would encourage another breath to be received. One, two more, and then the mind would kind of in its habit get tight again. I would let go and go back to receiving because at that point I was firmly convinced that just holding on to the object, just holding on to the breath was not the way towards the settled, balanced mind. Certainly we can hold on to an object. We can just like grab on like a dog on a bone and just hold on to it. And um, concentration will develop that way. It can, it definitely can develop if you just are, nope, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. It's almost like we, we push our way through the struggle of the tightness of it and then kind of break onto the other side and it's like, oh, now I don't have to work anymore. And the mind has kind of like, it, it's like the mind surrenders in exhaustion. It's like, okay, okay already. I'm going to stay with the breath. <laughs> so that can, you, we can do that. And because we get that, uh, that surrender at some point, we might think that's the way. You know, it's effective, or it can be effective for some, for some people. And so that was pretty much how I practiced. Um, and uh, it, before I, uh, I began to meet the 
receptive practice, I, I did. I latched on to those objects. And it was fruitful. There were ways in which it was fruitful. I learned a lot. And yet over time I did recognize that there was so much suffering around the striving and so much suffering ab- around what I came to see as the kind of fragility of a concentration developed in that way. When the, the concentration is developed by just you know holding on in that way, it takes certain conditions for that concentration to develop and to maintain. Gil, Gil used to say to me, your concentration is like this. It's deep, but it's narrow. It's like it's based on a very small foundation. He said, I want you to have a broader base for that. And it was Utejaniya that pointed me to that broader base. Um, and so with the, the relaxed attention, I think, is the broader base. The patience with exploring what does it mean with whatever practice it is to explore relaxed being with experience. The being with framing too, I think that w- those words, you know, if it's being with the breath, being with metta, whatever your practice is, um, some of the, the framing around relaxed receiving attention can be very helpful. And then in the qu- one of the questions about this, um, could, could open awareness be combined with traditional Vipassana in one retreat? Yes. And I think in this way, um, the, at least if, if what is meant is the Mahasi practice, the Mahasi practice traditionally begins with cultivating attention to the breath until you can stay with, at least this is the way I learned it in Burma, until you can stay with the breath continuously for an hour. And then you basically let go of the breath and move into open awareness. And so it's kind of a, a way to cultivating a very directed concentration um, that then gets and and the concentration is pointed to objects so that when you let go of that particular object, the concentration is interested in whatever objects appear. And so it's, it's, uh, it's an object-based practice, very valuable for uh, cultivating continuity of mindfulness, for uh, seeing clearly into the conditioned nature of objects, um, I learned a tremendous amount from the Vahasi, Mahasi practice. I also got very tight. I also got very, very uh, rigid in my in my mind. And so I would suggest, if you are exploring the Mahasi practice, to explore what it might mean to receive the breath to start, if that's where you're beginning. Receive the breath, and then the instructions... You know, the instructions there, it's like you receive the breath and if some other object becomes predominant, the instructions say something like you let your attention pick up on that object. And so, you know, it's kind of different in a way from concentration practice, which would be when some other object arises, you simply let it go and remain with the breath as much as possible. But the instructions with the Mahasi practice are actually you know, they're, they're, oh, they're, they're recognizing, I would language it differently, you know, it's, it's uh, you're receiving the breath, and then you recognize that some other strong object has become obvious. It's already obvious. It's not like, it's not like you know, you, uh, you actually need to stop paying attention to the breath and start paying attention to whatever this other thing is. The attention has already gone there. So, so seeing that, uh, that kind of relationship, you know, even the languaging can help there. And then the instruction is if, if that, in the, in the Mahasi practice, if that gets weak or goes away, then you return to attending to the breath. And so there the instructions are different. Um, in the Tejaniya style practice, 
you might start with a primary object to help settle the mind, but as soon as the mind moves to another experience, when that fades, it's like, well, what's next? What's there? What's already ne- What's already being known? So it might be another sound or another body sensation. In any case, with all of this, there can be the sense of receiving the objects. Not... Uh, you, you start by directing the attention at the breath, but then receiving the breath. And then the other experiences that arise that the attention moves to, they are received. You're meditating, there's a sound. The sound has been received. So I think that with the Mahasi practice in particular, looking at how can it be practiced in a receptive way would be useful. I have to give a caveat here because since I met the practice of Sayadaw Utejaniya, I have not returned to the Mahasi practice. I have not, I've not played with it at all, trying to integrate this practice with the Mahasi practice. I have tried integrating it with concentration practice. But I do think that uh, it can be, can be integrated. I think that some of the basic foundation of relaxed attention and checking the attitude are universal. Uh, from this practice. They're universal for creating a container that will uh, be a container in which a practice can unfold skillfully. Then um, another part of this question, um, would you recommend it for beginners? Um, I do teach this practice to beginners. Um, and what I've seen, you know, minds are very different. And some minds can relax when there's something given them to them to pay attention to. It's like, you, all you need to do is just put your attention on your breath. And some minds go, oh, thank you. Okay, that's what I'll do. Um, other minds find that to be fairly tight or tense. And, and if you just say, just notice what is already present in awareness, I say, oh, thank you. That's so much more restful. Um, so I often encourage people, and, and some pe- for some people it's just kind of um, equally easy or equally hard to do either one. Um, And so I like to, in talking to people about their practice, begin to get a sense of where the mind can be relaxed and attentive. So that relaxed attention that I needed to learn through Sayadaw Utejaniya's practice, some people very naturally would have a relaxed attention around the breath, around staying with one experience. And so what I see, see, or what I explore, is I listen to what is the most um, relaxed way that somebody can pay attention to their experience. And I encourage people to begin from that perspective. Start there. Start from where it's easiest. We might think that you know, well, okay, I'm, 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 it's easier for me to do that and it's harder for me to just stay with one object, so I should practice staying with one object. But what I've seen with respect to meditation is it's much more helpful to start where the mind is most naturally comfortable and work from there to um, begin to meet experience and understand the teachings of the Dharma through meeting experience. So I find when I teach beginners, I, I will offer this. You know, I offer a range. And in listening to beginners, if I hear that they, uh, that they are, you know, just all over the place and wandering with this kind of practice, I encourage them to recognize that, you know, the mind is agitated or wandering. And, you know, if they find that they're th- the same instructions we do here, if you find that it's not possible to be mindful, with experience, pick something that you can rest with. In this style, I do uh, 
you know, I don't, I don't, I don't say that you have to stay there. You know, it's a, it's, it's a different orientation than the Mahasi practice or concentration practice where the point at first in the Mahasi practice and the point with concentration practice is to stay with that object. So here the, the framing around an object to settle with is that's a tool to help the mind become present so that it can be aware of the broader range of experience. And ultimately, I would say that is also what the Mahasi practice aims towards. It just, the Mahasi practice, the way Mahasi Sayadaw taught it, um, takes the mind to a pretty high degree of concentration before opening up to open awareness. This practice trusts the mind can settle with open awareness. In contrast, the two Mahasi open awareness, I generally find that the, the Tejaniya style practice is a slower settle for myself, or initially at least it was a slower settle, um, but a much more organic one that broad base that Gil was wanting me to develop, that was being developed in that, in that practice. With the, uh, the Mahasi practice, the mind can move into concentration and kind of do a, an end run around some of the habits and patterns of mind. The deeper conditioning that you know, the, the deeper conditioning that motivates us in our daily lives, it's pretty easy with the Mahasi practice to just not go there. With this style of practice, I sometimes call this kind of retreat your mind 101, you know. You really get to know what's going on in there at deeper and deeper levels of subtlety. So they both, they both have benefits. They both have... I mean, the I think sometimes the benefit of the Mahasi practice is uh, it takes you pretty quickly to understanding the value of the Dharma and what can be seen, and uh, rec- you know kind of insights into not self, insights into out of control, and a lot of stability of mind that can hold those insights often, and yet those insights are at a certain level of experience that is not necessarily so applicable in daily life. And so many, many people found over the years with Mahasi practice uh, have these deep insights into not self on retreat and find themselves yelling at their partner when they go home. To me, this style of practice has a much more integrative approach. It, it uh, not only on retreat do we go through and are encouraged to watch the uh, whole field of defilements and range of habits and patterns that come. It's not noted until it goes away. It's open to it, get curious about it, recognize it, see what's conditioning it. So, yeah, let's see. Beginners, beginners, value of both. I think I covered that question. So actually, before um, I move on to taking the practice home, I'm, I'm. If there's questions about that particular piece of integrating the practice, I'm I'm open to questions about that particular piece at this point. Yeah. Um, so that was uh, yeah, integrating it with concentration practice. Um well first when I when I started the concentration practice I uh I um was going to just do what my teacher told me I'm not doing that practice I'm doing this practice and so I set the Tejaniya style practice aside at first and I would practice with the breath meditation and um over you know 5 days 6 days the mind would get so tight 
that uh, I had to, it's like it was so tight that it just like, it was like on the verge of breaking <laughs> that uh, I realized, you know, I just cannot do this concentration practice anymore. It's too tight. Um, and so I would, I talked to my teacher, um, Tanisaro Bhikkhu. I was doing the mindful, the bo- whole body breathing practice that he was teaching. And he said, well, is there another theme that you would like to contemplate when the mind gets into that kind of state? And I said, well, like metta? He said, yeah, like metta, but, you know, some theme. And so I went off and thought about it. And uh, what came to me is awareness. <laughs> That's what I want to contemplate. So, um, so when the mind got to that place, I just went into the open awareness practice. And so a couple days, I would, so it would be like five days of concentration, couple days of open awareness, the mind would get balanced again with the open awareness practice. And then I would come back to the breath. And for the first day or so of the concentration practice, I was like, wow, this is like easy now. And then over a few more days, it would get tight again. And so I'd go back and I started alternating a little more frequently. Um... And at some point I thought, why, why not just alternate in the middle, you know, why not just alternate right in the middle of the sitting? You know, why, why try, you know, why do this and then that? Maybe I can weave them together. And so I, that, that's what I described a little earlier, that I would start with open awareness, a breath would arise, and I would then turn my attention to that and see, Hmm, can I stay with that breath and be relaxed? It would stay relaxed for some period of time and then it would tighten again. And rather than letting it tighten, 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 tighten for days, as soon as it tightened, I'd go back to open awareness, inclined towards receiving a breath. And so it was like gradually uh, the mind became trained into how to attend to that object with relaxation. And then I could pretty much just start with open awareness for a few minutes or, you know, 20 minutes or so, and then move to the breath and be with the breath. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a kind of a learning of, of how to integrate the two. Um, and that's what gave me the sense that, uh, you know, it can be more interwoven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christine? I would say it was because I was trying to hold on to the breath. Uh, it was the way in which I had trained my mind to hold on to the breath, which was, you know, it contained tightness in a way. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that was me. I mean, if, if for others, you know, it sounds like maybe for you as trying to stay with the breath, it's partly because you're trying to not have other things. And so that would be an exploration. It's like, okay, can I, can I, uh, this is something I have actually started teaching. Um, When I teach concentration practice, it's, it's, uh, okay, like allow the container to be big. There's all kinds of things happening. You don't have to keep them away. You just kind of keep your touchstone on the breath. It's like, yep, there's hearing and the breath. There's body sensations and the breath. There's thoughts going through and the breath. So it's kind of holding an open awareness, but just every, every, um, every, every second you're just reminding yourself, yeah, and the breath, and the breath, and the breath. But it's allowing... So instead of trying to push away the other objects, it's, it's allowing them to be in the field. It's just not the direct orientation. So the, that, that I found useful, you know, kind of holding an open container, but keeping a touchstone of the object of interest. And gradually over time with that, the mind loses interest in the other stuff and begins to more gradu- gradually settle on the breath. Yeah. 
um, that is a very um, uh, traditional and useful practice. It's firmly on the path that talks about that in transcendent dependent origin, uh, transcendent dependent origination, the gladdening the mind. Um, um, it's not a practice I've used much, but it's not to say it's not useful. <laughs> it's just not been the orientation of, of this mind. This mind is gladdened by investigation. So, you know, that's it's like if I'm looking at something, it's like there's happiness there. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jefferson. Um, you know, the Satipatthana is interesting, you know, uh, what I, th- I consider what we're doing, the Satipatthana, you know, it, it has, the way the Satipatthana is phrased in a way, you know, very, can be seen to be supportive of this practice. And yet, the framing of the Satipatthana also can be seen as supportive of direct the attention to each of these areas. It can be understood to be, these are areas about, fr- about which you might notice experience, which is more the, uh, here's descriptions of things you might be interested in looking at and that would be useful to, s- to see as your, you know, kind of the orientation to experience. So you could, s- you could be sitting and then recognizing body sensations, feelings, mind states, and not needing to direct the attention. And people have interpreted the Satipatthana to be direct the attention to each of these. So if you're considering it as a directed practice, directed towards the body, directed towards feeling, I would say yes, that you can, as I said with the breath, direct the attention somewhere. It's kind of like, you know how a radio works? You, uh, you tune it down to receive a frequency, right? But then the receiver receives. It's like the, the, the tuning to a station has narrowed the bandwidth to, wi- to what would be receiving. But it's not like the radio is going out and looking for things there. It's receiving. So that it could be considered in that way. It's like you're, you're a radio receiver that has tuned to feeling tone or a radio receiver that has tuned to body. So that, so that you, you kind of tune the, the station and then receive. So I would say that there was it wasn't it wasn't so much that I wanted that stability. Okay. It was the mind oriented and and the the, the practice <laughs> you know it's it's like I was just doing my practice and I came back from Burma and I was like, yeah, I found my practice and I'm suddenly finding myself searching out Tanasaro Bhikkhu. It's like, okay, I guess I'm going to do concentration practice. And, um, and I did that for a couple years after I, I worked with Sayadaw. So it seemed to be something in my practice and I think trusting the rhythms of practice, of our own practice. And that's what I did. I just trusted that that was the next step, the next stage. Um, and I think in some ways what I learned, <laughs> what I learned was about this integration and the importance of the, the integration of um, uh, the relaxed attention with directing the attention, you know, that, that they don't have to be separate. So to me, that's a lot of what I learned in that time with, with Tanasaro Bhikkhu. Um, so, I mean, I don't, I don't remember, I don't remember whether, yeah, I don't remember the, 
uh, beyond that, that's what I recall at this point, what was, what was relevant. Um, more recently, I would say, um, I've had, I had a, a retreat a couple of years ago Maybe you're referring to this uh, coming out of a retreat. It was a forest refuge retreat where I did exclusively this practice. Actually, I, s I went saying, I'm going to see what happens. I'll start with open awareness, and if it moves to concentration, and I, I was kind of thinking I would do concentration practice, but as I just landed in the open awareness, the open awareness practice had its own life, its own um, deepening, and it was taking the practice to places that I had not seen before. And so there was no interest in switching to, uh, to concentration. The mind didn't go that way. But at the same time, the mind got very, very concentrated. Very, very concentrated. Not one-pointed concentration, but... Um, well, actually, it was interesting. I, t I was talking to somebody who had practiced with Pauloxyada and um, I described to her what was happening in my practice. And she said, that's what Pauloxyada says is the doorway to concentration. And so that's just what my mind had started doing. And I said, but I'm not orienting towards an object. You know, I was not, not picking a particular object. She said, it doesn't matter. That's what he says will lead to concentration. And so, you know, I don't know how much further that can go in terms of cultivating a very, um, like, one-pointed concentration without using an object. I don't know how much further that can go. But I, I did come out of that retreat with the utter confidence that the stability of mind that can develop with this practice is sufficient for liberation. And so that, that was something I wasn't sure about before. Whether this practice is, I mean, whether just doing this practice would lead to the um, form and formless jhanas, I don't know. Um, but that's, you know, I'm, that's not so much my interest. So, so that's a little bit of a clarification of, of what I said then, yeah. You mean um, in the concentration, recognizing the attitude? Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's that's an important piece of it. You know, noticing the attitude of the mind as it's paying attention. You know, it's 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 almost like more the attitude towards the practice. Is there greed towards the practice? Is there wanting to see, wanting to know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a big piece of it. And yeah. have you worked with the wholesome practice of mind as well? You know, um, it's been more. I would say for me in my practice, you know, the, the, the focus is on the concentration. And so what gets in the way of the concentration is the unwholesome. If the unwholesome aren't there, the concentration is where the mind was going. So n n no, I guess not. <laughs> yeah. So um, probably could continue with that theme, but there's 20 minutes and I do want to speak some to taking the practice home. Sometimes I say, continuing in the advanced retreat. Um, so I began introducing some of the ideas around this this morning that, you know, as we, uh, our retreat shifts a little bit, we start to recognize different objects. These objects tend to be ones that we haven't been paying attention to in the last week or so, and so the mind tends to get caught with them. Or else it believes, so here's another thing to check, it, there's a kind of belief that, oh, that object's arising, therefore it means I'm not mindful. That's why I kept repeating this morning, check the awareness, check the awareness. Maybe you're actually mindful while that's happening. So um, going home, you're going into a field of objects. <laughs> So many objects, <laughs> so many, and yet, as Joseph says, you know, it's only six. You know, you've got seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, <laughs> and things in your mind. Um, but the, the diversification of those fields that the mind makes 
uh, you know, creates a lot of terrain for the, uh, the wandering. So that's the first piece, just to, to recognize, okay, the objects are changing. So what does it mean? What is the true, ob- what is the object now? You know, what's the truth of now? For myself, um, I want to highlight for you some of the specific things I found useful in terms of practicing with this at home. Um, I'd say the, the main practice that I use in daily life is just recognizing when mindfulness returns. That simple. Just, oh, mindfulness is back. What's here? Mindfulness is back, already aware of this. So really uh, highlighting that, re- that remembering moment. Um, I don't actually try too hard, and I actually don't encourage people to try too hard to work to maintain it in the midst of daily life. I do encourage from time to time, if there's something that you recognize, oh, okay, I don't need too much thinking here, you know, washing the dishes or, or making your bed, doing some chore or, you know, taking your shower in the morning. You know, you might explore, what does it mean? What might it mean to, to just relax and receive this experience? But in the midst of your day when you're planning and engaged and trying to remember what you have to do and talking to people about work or, you know, whatever you're engaged in, to, as soon as you notice a moment of awareness, try to say, oh, stop, okay, let me now bring my attention here and keep that, am I aware? What am I aware of? You know, try to do that while you're having a conversation. It's not so easy. So, um the recognizing of the moments of awareness, I, I encourage, r- keep, learn to recognize those moments and then just go on with your day. That moment of mindfulness re-arising, as we've been exploring here, um, it's effortless. You didn't have to do that one. And this is the key struggle that people often report in daily life practice. They say, it takes too much effort. I don't have time to be mindful in my daily life. And what I think they mean is I don't have time to remind myself to be mindful. My mind is occupied by doing other things, you know. I can't, I can't be reminding myself, I can't be noting while I'm having a conversation. So the, the exploration of recognizing those effortless moments of mindfulness, the ones that just simply arise, um, the more you recognize those in your daily life, the more you see that they actually happen a lot. We've been exploring that here, and it's true in daily life as well. If, as you get familiar with that feeling of waking up while you're walking across the street, while you're driving your car, while you're reaching for a glass when you're having a meal, while you're having a conversation in the midst of whatever you're doing, oh, I'm act- I know that I'm here. Take the very lightest of effort it requires to recognize this is what it feels like to be mindful while I'm reaching for my glass or while I'm driving. Just take that moment to, to notice, highlight for yourself, ah, mindfulness is here. And then just go on with your day, whatever else that you are engaged in. The more you recognize those moments, the more you highlight those moments. My experience is at least the more, uh, it's like you sensitize yourself to that experience of mindfulness returning. And so the more the mind recognizes it. So as you consciously recognize it, it creates the conditions for you to recognize it more and more and more. And then you just get this like, light touch of nearly effortless mindfulness that is just popping through your day. And you might see at times that some of those popping in, there's a little bit of a pocket of continuity. And you ride that for a little while. You wake up and you're driving and it's like, wow, I'm, I know that I'm driving. It's like effortless to just be there with that. And then you, you see something or hear something and the mindfulness goes out. That's okay. So it's, it's, it's like the, the mindfulness starts to just kind of infuse in little bits through the day. So for me, this is my key daily life practice, the main one that I explore.
Um, another piece um, that I find I have found helpful. So earlier in the retreat, I encouraged you to get curious about where mindfulness gets lost. So what are the mindfulness sinks? You know, where does the mindfulness just like go down the drain? Um, it, in particular, it might be around per, you know, certain habits of mind, uh, impatience or... Um, Somebody was talking earlier in a group about engaging in uh, um, scholarly study being a place where the mind kind of got caught. So be curious about that. You know, it's like, okay, that's where the mind tends to get lost. And then as you go into, if it's an activity, if it's something that you're doing, you know, going to business meetings or having a conversation with a certain friend or maybe having a conversation with a parent, maybe that's where it might happen. You know, be curious as you're heading into that activity, not to try to then force yourself, I'm going to stay mindful, but again, the curiosity of what happens there? When does the mindfulness get lost? How does it get lost? We can be curious about that in daily life as well. Um, the, uh, the, that curiosity I encourage to be much more like an intention that we're curious about. Okay, I tend to get lost there, so mind, let's see what we can know about that. Let, you know, it's like the start of each day, you know, I want to see if I might be able to wake up when I'm noticing impatience. You know, maybe I can wake up when impatience is happening. So there's ki- there kind of is a, a an intention that we gather our uh, interest around. With that intention, you kind of just set your intention, and then again through the day, you, d- you don't you don't try to keep reminding yourself of that all day long, but at some point, at points of the day, you might recognize mindfulness might return even around that intention. You know, I've seen this happen that the way it often returns around that intention is I come into mindfulness and so a mindfulness arises and there's the remembering of that intention and the recognition of over the last five hours I haven't been mindful once and I know that that impatience has happened. So in this moment, as I have come into mindfulness and remembered that intention, let me reconnect with that intention. I'm going to keep trying. going to keep trying. So a, a connecting with that intention with patience and kindness and compassion for the fact that this is hard. This is like the hardest thing we try to do, bringing mindfulness right into the middle of our lives. So... What I've seen with that orientation, that patient resolve, connecting to a particular pattern that tends to be very sticky for us, over time, if we keep reminding ourselves in that gentle way, you know, the mind responds really well to kindness. It actually does. So if you're friendly with it, when you say, oh, oh yeah, I didn't notice that last five hours. That's okay. We'll keep trying. If you're, fr- if, you're, if you're angry at your mind and it's like, you know, how come I can't do this and I'm so bad at this and I've really got to try harder, you know, the mind gets a little, like, unruly with that. It responds really well to friendliness and kindness. So that friendly, kind, patient, uh, oh, I'm just going to keep trying. Over weeks, I see, you know, if you as as an orientation to in daily life picking um, picking something over weeks, what I see is that the mind begins to land, or it's like that that um, state or that activity. We start to wake up in it, just little intimations of being aware in the middle of being impatient, or um, in the middle of an activity. We just begin to see that happening, just continuing to just resolve patient, kind approach. So that's another p- 
piece that I found very, very helpful in daily life. Uh, a third piece. So I'll give you these three. Moments of awareness. Just the moments of awareness. And that includes really light touch. You know, not trying to effort too hard. So noticing the moments of awareness. Being curious about specific areas in which you find you get caught. Seeing if it might be possible. Basically, it's, it's the question is, can mindfulness wake up into that? And just holding that question, staying with that question, recognizing that it hasn't worked yet, but I'm going to keep trying. So keep, keep, uh, keep that orientation of curiosity around a particular area. And then the third is uh, the awareness of content. Um, I talked about the 50-50 mindfulness, 50% of the attention with content of what's happening, 50% of the attention on how the content is landing. I think I talked about that with respect to talking and listening. Content is huge in our lives. And learning how to have a mindful relationship with content goes a long way towards helping us be mindful in our lives. And so this is some of what um, I've been encouraging with the talking practice. You know, we're going to engage with some content here. How does it land? You're listening to someone speak. They're speaking some particular topic. What they're, in, they're bringing content into your mind. How, how are you with that content? we can begin to open to our response. And sometimes it's you know, helpful to just keep that simple, like, am I contracted or at ease with that, with that content? Over time, we can begin to get a little more nuanced in terms of what we notice. You know, we, we may see subtle threads of, of fear and compassion and excitement and just little quick flits through as we get more familiar with this practice of knowing content and knowing how we are with content. There are times, you know, Sayadaw just, you know, somebody, somebody was asking Sayadaw, well, what about a, an 80-20 content? And he laughed and, 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 and he said, you know, I just say 50-50, you know, it's like, it's not like actually 50-50. <laughs> <laughs> But there can sometimes be a sense that certain content needs a little more uh, um, attention. So when I was a computer programmer and exploring this possibility, the, the computer programming that I was engaged in took a lot of the, the cycles of attention. And it was, it was like it was a concentration practice, you know, with computer programming. It's like building a city in your mind. And you have to remember all of the streets, addresses, and what the buildings are, and what's in every room in the building, and hold that all in your mind. It's like, it's like those mandalas, I think, that the Tibetans build in their mind. That's kind of what the programming is like. It's building something in the mind, and, and then you can, you know, okay, that's there, and this is there, and you can pull them together, and... So that, it's, it's a phenomenal concentration practice programming. But I discovered actually it was possible, it's possible to um, know that concentration without interfering with what the mind is doing. I don't know, you know, 50-50, 90-10, I don't know what it was, but, but it was possible to, uh, to have that kind of awareness while engaged in that depth of an activity. And this points to another question that, that somebody asked about the flow state in which we lose awareness of self and time and are engaged in a task like writing. This state is so clearly useful and wholesome yet not mindful in it in the usual sense. And, and, and what I saw is like that kind of that computer program is very much that, you know, the mind gets very concentrated there 
And yet I discovered there's actually, you know, there, there is this little bit of mindfulness that can be there. And it's like, it just knows. It's, it's knowing what's happening in the mind. Over and over again, I have seen uh, that if I think it's not possible for mindfulness to infuse a state, it's generally a mistaken belief. I haven't yet found something that mindfulness can't go into. So uh, I would say probably it would be possible, I mean, you know, if you're trying to bring mindfulness into a flow state, it's going to interrupt the flow. But mindfulness can arise in a flow state. And I think that happens as we cultivate the momentum of mindfulness in this receptive way, not directing the attention, not saying mindfulness is cultivated by pointing the attention to something, but this receptive, just receiving. Sometimes that receptive awareness arises in a flow state. And then you get the understanding of how it's possible to be mindful in there. It's not something we can do. It's like a gift. It's, 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 uh, it's like grace, for lack of a better word, that we can see the possibility of mindfulness arising in those states. So content, what time is it? I've got three minutes, okay. Um, really important to uh, cultivate this relation with content. Um, there's some ways to do it um, on our own in a way, you know. Um, Dawn asked earlier about reading and writing and um, reading is essentially taking in the content of somebody else's mind and you can do that at your own pace. So it's a, a way that we can familiarize ourselves with what does it mean to be present for content if we, if we choose to make it a practice, I'm going to try to read and receive what is the experience. You know, how does this content that this author is putting into my mind or that I'm choosing to let this author put this into my mind, how does it land? Reading the newspaper, reading the news, hearing the news, this is a powerful practice for me. You know, the, the taking in the content of the news and feeling, you know, the, the ripples and contractions and emotions that arise with that. We can do it at our, in our own pace. You know, you, 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 I, t I talked to a, a, a group a little earlier about, you know, opening your emails and, you know, you read, all you need to start with is just read the subject line of some emails. It's like, okay, that's enough, you know. <laughs> well, let me feel that. Let me feel that for a little while. Um, you know, get, you take, it, take it at a pace where you can practice with it. Um, you know, reading the news, I, you know, sometimes the headline is enough. That's it. Okay, that's enough for now. And then, and then I'll read a paragraph. Okay, that's enough. Let me <laughs> feel that. So we can, we can explore the, uh, the, the uh, how that content impacts us in our own time. Um, whereas in a conversation, it's much more content's coming very quickly. And we're trying to attend to not only the word content, but the content of how somebody looks and their gestures and their body language. So there's a lot of content there that, that we're taking in. And it's, uh, you know, the training that we can do for ourselves and doing that with reading can support us in being able to do that in conversation. In writing, we're essentially practicing the... Um, uh, giving content to others. How are we, as we construct content in our own minds and offer it out into the world? How does it land? How does it feel to think about offering content to the world? So in writing again, we can slow it down. We can do it at our own pace, play with what that's like. So um, it's time to stop. So. 
we'll have some more time for questions, um, and we'll start. We'll start with questions about daily life practice at the seven o'clock time. So, if there's any of those, hold on to them. <laughs> 